this morning, Revelation. We're back to Revelation. And, and Revelation takes us backstage of that great war, a war which John saw and describes for us here in Revelation 12. Years ago, I had a, a seminary professor who suggested that if you grow tired in ministry, if you grow tired of the same old Advent Scripture passages, then maybe you want to get adventurous and, and try Revelation 12 on for size at Christmas time and see what happens. He said, just don't do it on Christmas Day. People will think you're weird. I don't want you to think I'm weird, so I'm not going to do it on Christmas Day. But I'm also not tired of the old um, Advent Scriptures. I just think that Revelation 12 is a profoundly important one. And so you can follow along on page 6 in your bulletin if you can find it there. This is what John saw. And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his head seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne, And the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1260 days. Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world, He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. Excuse me, the... And the kingdom of our God and authority of his Christ have come for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God and they have conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony for they love not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows that his time is short. And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and half a time. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. But the earth came to the help of the woman and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from its mouth. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. 
Father, we pray that you would be with us. Would you enable us to understand this strange scene yet again in Revelation? Help us to recognize your gospel and to believe. We pray even now as churches all around our city gather together to consider your word, would you move mightily among your people and draw us close to yourself, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. In 1941, C.S. Lewis introduced this book that I have here with me on the pulpit, The Screwtape Letters. One of the most fascinating collections of essays, I think, that I've ever seen, and I highly recommend it. Many of you have read it, I know. It's a collection of letters that C.S. Lewis constructed, letters written by a demon named Screwtape, addressed to his nephew and protege, a young demon whose name is Wormwood, and they are letters advising this young Wormwood, this young demon, on how he might go about his work of deceiving and accusing and leading people astray from God's truth. And Lewis introduced his book this way. This is what he said. There are two equal and opposite errors into which our human race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. The devils themselves are equally pleased by both errors and hail a materialist or a magician with the same delight. The one, the materialist, scoffs at this ridiculous scene that I just read to you. This couldn't possibly happen. He says, dragons don't exist. These things don't happen. Don't be silly, he says. The other, the magician, covets an autograph from Benedict Cumberbatch. You know who he is? The voiceover actor who portrayed the great and terrible dragon smog in the Hobbit movies. The magician covets an autograph and and the sensationalist ideas of the demons and the dragons that must be out and around him. One of them mocks spiritual warfare altogether. These things don't happen. If you can't see it, he says, don't believe it. The other one, rather than mocking, frets. Fearful of all the demons that must be hiding in the dark corners around every corner and dark hallway, maybe even hiding in the dark rafters above those lights above your heads. And both of them are mistaken. Both of them are mistaken. Life in this world, no doubt, is filled with strife. It's filled with conflict and confusion. It's filled with anger and fear. It's filled with the births of evil ones and the deaths of loved ones. Why? Why is it filled with these things? At Advent, we together anticipate the coming of the one who will put an end to all of these things. But it won't happen, finally, until the great war has been fought and concluded. And this great war, the Apostle Paul so wisely described to us, saying that it is not against flesh and blood, He's told the Ephesians, but rather against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this present darkness, against the 
spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, Paul said, you must take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand. Now, we have church here in the Dallas Children's Theater, and there are all kinds of quirky parts about that. We all know that, right? Some of it you like, and some of it maybe you don't like, perhaps. But one of the great advantages that we have of having church in a theater is that every Sunday you come here and you get to see this. You get to see backstage. Now, now maybe you've noticed that back here there are three or four layers of backstage, and they can draw curtains over each layer of it. More than a couple of your kids in the past couple of weeks have asked me, seeing backstage, and maybe you can kind of see to the side, there are these enormous sets of Christmas presents. And more than a couple of your kids have asked me, are those presents real? Moms, dads, they're anticipating, and their expectations are being built up backstage. Because... They can see what's back there, and they're wondering, is that going to be on my tree on Christmas morning? You can see backstage here in this theater. Revelation shows you backstage. It shows you that there are layers behind the set of reality, behind which very important things happen. And they show you that the enemy is very real. Good versus evil is the most fundamental storyline in all of the entertainment industry. I mean, it's, it is the storyline of the entertainment industry. Where would Hollywood be without good versus evil? There always has to be an antagonist to the protagonist. There always has to be an enemy to the hero. And why is that? It's because the narrative story in which we actually live is marked by a great conflict. It's marked by a great war. But it's not just a story. The enemy is real. John has seen so much in this revelation up to this point. Remember, he's seen the incarnate Jesus dictating letters to the churches of Asia Minor. And he's seen the Lamb in heaven taking the scroll from the hand of God. He's seen the seals being broken open by that lamb and all the mayhem that comes from the seals. He has heard the trumpets blown by the angels and all the warnings that come with the trumpets. Surely by now John must be exhausted, don't you think, and maybe in need of a rest, but he doesn't get it. Instead, he gets this. He gets to see backstage just a little bit more. Chapter 11 had ended, you might remember, with the customary flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder and earthquake and hail, the ordinary uh, setting in Revelation that tells you that one scene is closing and a different scene is opening. But this scene that you've just read and seen is different only because of the lens through which you look at it. In this scene, you see the same thing that you've been seeing in the other scenes, you see redemptive history from the birth of Christ to His return. But you see it from a different lens, from a different angle, and so you see it a bit differently. In this one, John sees some new characters. And once again, they're clothed, surprise, in Old Testament markings. Okay, verse 1, he sees a great sign, appeared in heaven a woman, 
clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and crying out in birth pains. What would John think when he saw this scene, do you think? What would he imagine? John, who had stood at the foot of Jesus' cross next to his mother Mary and had been commissioned by the dying Jesus to take care of his mother. John surely would have thought, well, maybe this is Mary. Maybe this is a a strange picture of Mary, the mother of Jesus. She's giving birth to a child, a male child. But John, a Jew, also surely would have thought back further than that. Maybe even all the way to Genesis 37. You know the story of Genesis 37. That's where you read about Joseph and his technicolor dream coat. Joseph, the the young braggart son of, of Jacob, whose name had been changed to Israel. Joseph, who had 11 brothers, had a dream. And in that dream, he saw the sun and the moon and the 11 stars bowing down to him. And he evidently lacked some discretion in his youth, and he told his whole family about his dream, and they were angry about it because they knew what it meant. Joseph, you're crazy, they said. The sun is your father. The moon is your mother. Eleven stars, you have eleven brothers. We're older than you are. We're not going to bow down at your feet. Joseph ended up in Egypt. You know the story. They bowed down at his feet for the very survival from a famine as he rose to power in Egypt. Joseph told that story, and now John is seeing this vision of this woman, and he surely would recognize this isn't simply Mary giving birth to Jesus. This is Israel. This is the whole community of God's people through which, through the ages, he has preserved his gospel promise to bring about his Messiah in the flesh. This is Israel. And so she gave birth to a male child, he goes on, one who's to rule all the nations with a rod of iron, but her child was caught up to God and to his throne. What would John think about this? Well, this one's pretty clear. This is Jesus being born in We know that for at least a couple of reasons here in the text. One is that John cites Psalm 2. A child who's to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. That's what Psalm 2, a kingship psalm, says about the birth of Jesus. John would have known that. But not only that, this child is caught up to God and to his throne. Do you remember back in Revelation 4 and 5 how the prepositions became so important? The elders were around the throne. The angels were above the throne. Everyone was under the throne and around. All the prepositions were there. What's the preposition here? This child is caught up to the throne. No one goes to the throne except for God alone or his son. The child is Jesus. But, you know, these two are not the attention getters in the scene, right? There's just something else here. Verse 3, and another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his head seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. He is, in the words of Eugene Peterson, a crimson gash violating the sky. And what does he seek to do? He seeks to devour the child once the woman gives birth. But who is this crimson gash? Well, you may know, and I may know, 
who he is, and John surely knew pretty quickly who this one is. But his nature is completely adversarial, this one. That's what his name means, adversary. And so in verse 9, John bypasses all the clues. Did you notice this? He doesn't do this often in the book of Revelation. In fact, this may be the only time he does it. He bypasses all the clues, and he says, That ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. Don't you wish that John would do that more often? As we go through the book of Revelation, that he would just tell you, this is what this means. He doesn't usually do that, but here he does. Why? Why does he skip all the clues and just go straight to the point here? I don't really know, but I have a pretty good guess, I think. I think it's that he wants to place this character exactly in history so that we don't make the mistake of forgetting this enemy is real. This enemy actually is real. Satan is not just a figment of your imagination. He's not just a lucrative creation of Hollywood. And he's not just a dramatic representation of all that's ugly in the world. He is real. Sometimes we forget how Paul described this war as being not against flesh and blood. You and I are naturally materialists. That's kind of our nature in this fallen world. We forget that it's not against flesh and blood. Something's actually happening back there, backstage behind the third curtain. Something's back there. An enemy is operating back behind the third curtain. But in our materialistic minds, we assume that the enemy is each other. And it's one of the most tragic mistakes, I think, that Christians make in regard to their posture towards the world. So, parents, how often have you thought that your teenagers are the enemy? Teenagers, in all fairness, how often have you thought that your parents are the enemy? Wives, how often have you thought that your husband is the enemy? And, and husbands, I won't make you admit it, but I know you've thought it. At times, you think these things because we're materialists. Conservatives think that liberals are the enemy, and liberals think that conservatives are the enemy. One race thinks another race is the enemy, and nowadays... Everyone thinks that Muslims are the enemies, don't we? I saw a political cartoon this week that featured in dark colors a nasty-looking devil face with goat horns and yellow beady eyes and a full Islamic beard. And the caption said this, Mr. President, you may not believe in radical Islam, but radical Islam believes in you. Now, there's some wisdom in that. You can't confront an enemy that you don't acknowledge. Whatever your politics may be on all these matters, you can't confront an enemy that you don't acknowledge. But the political cartoon actually missed something very subtle, I think. Because is radical Islam evil? Absolutely it is. There is no doubt that it is evil. In fact, you don't even need the word radical 
just remove that altogether. That's somewhat deceptive. Islam is evil, as is every man-made religion that directs your heart and your soul away from the one truth that God has established in the world. Every man-made religion is evil. Is radical Islam evil? Is Islam evil? Yes, absolutely it is. But are the people who are duped by it, are they the enemy? No. In the words of a, a wise teacher that I heard about this, Islam is a system, and you can and should hate the system for its deception. But Muslims are people, and as a Christian, you can and you must love the people who are deceived by it. Is it the en- are they the enemy? No, they're not. There is a dragon behind the scenes. You can't confront an enemy that you don't acknowledge. And every materialist so-called Christian has to acknowledge that. If you don't believe in Satan, you must recognize he believes in you. He's not omniscient. He's not omnipotent. He's not equal but opposite to God. Don't mistake that. He is not those things. But if you're a Christian, he is your enemy. And as Paul said, you must take up the whole armor of God so that you may stand against the wiles of the devil because he's real and the combat of this war is dangerous because the dragon is very, very angry. Okay, verses 1 through 6 in this passage on page 6 before you. The first six verses kind of summarize the whole scene. Did you notice this? And then verses 7 through 17, the next two paragraphs, give the same scene but with more details. Did you, did you see that? Verse 7, now war arose in heaven. And you have this scene of Michael, an archangel who's mentioned elsewhere in Scripture. Michael and his angels are fighting the dragon and his angels. And the dragon is defeated and thrown down along with all of his angels. That is... By the way, the third of the stars swept out of the sky by his tail in poetic, symbolic terms. And heaven rejoices over this outcome in verse 10 following, but the fight is not over. See verse 12, the devil has come down in great wrath. In verse 17, the dragon became furious. Now, I'm sure that there is no coincidence that Matthew's description in Matthew 2, which you heard moments ago, is echoed right here in Revelation 12. Do you remember what you heard read from the New Testament reading earlier? You heard this. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem who were two years old or under. Now, what would John be thinking? Again, to go back and try to parse John's brain a bit and understand what he might have been thinking as he saw these things unfold before him. What do you think he might have been thinking when he saw that this dragon became furious and went after the child and the mother and the offspring? John maybe was thinking, you know, I've, I've heard of this story before. Back when I was four years old, I know my mom explained to me that King Herod sent his soldiers to that tiny town Bethlehem and killed all the little boys two years old and younger. He was furious. Was Herod the dragon? 
snow, but he was a pawn of the dragon. John probably then went on back into his Old Testament minds and thought of some other stories. Haman, that's a Bible name for you that maybe you recall in the book of Esther. Haman was a Persian man who was a descendant of the enemies of the kings of Israel and who sought to have the Israelites destroyed in Persia. But God had raised up Esther, a Jewish woman, for just such a time as this to be queen of Persia, and God saved his people. Was Haman the dragon? No, but he was a pawn of the dragon. Well, what about even further back? Do you know there's another story like that? Pharaoh? When the Israelites were in Egypt and Moses was born and all the children of Israel were to be killed, the infant boys, but Moses was spared in a raft on the river. Was Pharaoh the dragon? No, but he was a pawn of the dragon for sure. In all those efforts, the dragon making efforts to prevent the birth of the child whom he knew was coming to crush his head. But did the dragon succeed in killing the child? No, he didn't. And so then what did he do? Revelation tells us, verse 17, Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. Now, can you understand why there's so much conflict in the world? We're backstage. We're back there behind the third curtain right now, and the dragon is busy at work. This explains the narrative in which you and I live. It explains the headlines in the newspaper that you see every day. After Satan was thrown down in verse 12, that voice is loudly proclaiming his defeat. In verse 12, it goes on to say, Rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. He's been thrown down out of heaven. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows his time is short. He failed, he failed to kill the Messiah, and now he is furious at you. He's furious at his church. He's furious at the offspring of the woman, and he wants to destroy them. So you young Christians, as you hear this, don't misunderstand. Don't, don't think that Smog the Terrible is going to come show up at your doorstep on Christmas morning. He's, he's not like he sort of did for me when I was a child. When I was a kid, my parents gave me a Christmas gift one year, which I thought was really, really cool when I got it. I don't know if I was six, seven years old when they gave it to me. It was a plastic model of a Tyrannosaurus Rex. I had to assemble it, and I loved doing that. I built this model with my dad's help. It was bright orange. I'm not sure that T-Rexes were bright orange, but this one was. And we got it all assembled, teeth and claws and eyes and everything, and it was really cool. And then I sat in the corner of my room that night and went to bed. In the middle of the night, I looked up to see it, and its eyes and teeth and claws were glowing bright yellow. And I was terrified. I got up. And I carefully approached it and picked it up and moved it out in the hallway and went back to bed. My mom always remembers that story that the 
the dragon had to sleep in the hallway. I was not going to have that dragon in my room at night. Young ones, don't misunderstand. No dragon is coming to glow its claws in the dark in your room. Satan is not dangerous because of his scary looks. He's dangerous because of his tricky weapons. John mentioned some of this earlier in our worship service. The the danger of this combat can be very subtle because the adversary uses very subtle weapons, weapons of deception and accusation. You see in verse 9, he's called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. I have a passage from the Screwtape letters I want to read to you real quickly as a great example of this. This is one of the letters that Screwtape wrote to his nephew Wormwood, and this is what he said. Dear Wormwood, obviously you're making excellent progress. My only fear is lest in attempting to hurry the patient, the patient is the person he's trying to mislead, lest in attempting to hurry the patient you awaken him to a sense of his real position. For you and I, who see that position as it really is, must never forget how totally different it ought to appear to him. We know that we have introduced a change of direction in his course, which is already carrying him out of his orbit around the enemy. The enemy is God. But he must be made to imagine that all the choices which have affected this change, of course, are trivial and revocable. He must not be allowed to suspect that he is now, however slowly, heading right away from the sun on a line that will carry him into the cold and dark of utmost space. For this reason... I am almost glad to hear that he is still a churchgoer. I know there are dangers in this, but anything is better than that he should realize the break he has made with the first months of his Christian life. As long as he retains externally the habits of a Christian, he can still be made to think of himself as one who has adopted a few new friends and amusements, but whose spiritual state is much the same as it was six weeks ago and while he thinks that we don't have to contend with the explicit repentance of a definite fully recognized sin he's simply saying look let him go to church but deceive him let him think that his sins are not real let him think that he doesn't really have anything to repent of like those other people in church And then we've won. Deception, it's a great tool of this enemy. Accusation is another one. In verse 10, you read this. He's the the accuser of our brothers. He's been thrown down, the one who accuses our brothers day and night before God. Now, interestingly, in a couple of other places in the Old Testament, Satan appears before God. Maybe you know those places. Job is maybe the best known of those. In Job 1, he comes before God to accuse Job of not being all he's cracked up to be. But another one is in Zechariah 3. Our confession of sin was based on that this morning. In Zechariah 3, the prophet sees a vision of Joshua the high priest standing before God, wearing filthy garments of his own sin, and next to him is Satan pointing fingers at Joshua the high priest. Hey, God, look at your high priest. Look at him. He's filthy. He's guilty. The accusations are heavy coming in this scene to Joshua. But the scene unfolds and 
God rebukes Satan for it, and he undresses Joshua of his filth and replaces his filth with the fine linen of the righteousness of Christ. This enemy accuses you in subtle ways. Why should you serve as a deacon in our church? You've given in to temptation eh, one or two or three times too many, haven't you? Why should you come to the communion table today? Because you know you haven't prayed much this week. You've felt those accusations come at you, haven't you? You've felt them derived in your own mind and your heart, and you've tinkered with them and toyed with them and begun to doubt. This one accuses and blame shifts because he's lost. But his accusations are worthless against us. Why? Because of the righteousness of Christ. He accuses the saints day and night before God. But don't you know that God has grown weary of that? Don't you know that he has? Because the dragon failed to snatch the child. And because he did, Paul to the Romans could write these great words. Who will bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is he that condemns? Christ Jesus who died, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God interceding for us. The deceptions are daily. The accusations are sharp. And the combat is dangerous. But you have to recognize, too, from this scene that the outcome is certain. Notice here, like I said before, that these are not two equal and opposite forces against each other. The dragon and God are not, with apologies to my Star Wars fans, friends out there, they are not the same as the force and the dark side. And we're wondering which one is going to prevail based on what people might do for and in them. This is not the picture of the gospel or of spiritual reality. We already read here, war arose in heaven and Michael and his angels fought the dragon and defeated him. There is only one God. There is only one Yahweh. And did you notice? He doesn't even lift a finger in this war. He doesn't even lift a finger in this battle against the adversary because Satan is not autonomous. He and his demons can only assault the saints within a divinely prescribed time. And that time is short, we're told. In fact, we're told the number of days he has, 1,260 days. We're told that it's a time, times and half a time. Now, you have to remember those numbers. We've already come across them in Revelation. Do you remember what they mean? 1,260 days, if you do the math, you figure it out, it's three and a half years the same as a time, times, and half a time, three and a half. And what's three and a half but half of seven? Seven is God's perfect number of eternity. If, if the devil only has three and a half to accomplish what he wants to do, he doesn't have forever. His time is short. It's coming to an end. His defeat was certain with the first advent of Christ. We know it from Luke chapter 10. I referred to this some weeks ago, too. In Luke 10, Jesus sends out 72 disciples with his authority to proclaim the kingdom and to heal the sick and even to cast out demons. And the 72 come back to him a week later 
rejoicing. They're joyful, they're, and they're amazed. They're saying, even the demons submitted to what we said. And do you know what Jesus said in response to them? He said this, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. That's what he saw when his kingdom was proclaimed going out. And in fact, that's what happened the moment Jesus was born and preserved by God from all the ages. Satan fell like lightning from heaven because his warring against the woman and the rest of her offspring will not last. But during it, the church will be cared for. One more thing as we wrap up. In verses 6 and 14, you see this. The woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished. Verse 14, the dragon's been thrown down to earth and he's pursued the woman, but she was carried away into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished. Now, where is this place prepared by God? Where is this wilderness to which the woman was carried away? It's really pretty simple, I think. It is wherever the people of God have been freed from their bondage. It is wherever the sons and daughters of the Most High have been united in their pursuit of their sanctification. It is wherever the church, capital C, resides. That's where this wilderness is. And in this place, we will be nourished. I was talking with a a young friend earlier this week about the communion table, which you see set up before you, which we'll come to in just a moment, and was explaining what happens here at this table with the bread and the wine and the fact that we struggle so hard to believe the gospel because faith is intangible and our hearts and our souls are simply not strong enough to grasp it on our own. The man came to Jesus and said, I believe But help me with my unbelief. We struggle with that. We're not strong enough. But how does God nourish us for the fight? He doesn't do it by some big pep rally event. He does it by word and sacraments and prayer. He does it by the simple means of grace through which he feeds his people by faith to trust in the righteousness of Jesus You live in the wilderness. You live there. You live in the wilderness described in Revelation 12. You live in the 1260 days. That time is right now. The time and times and half a time is unfolding even as I speak. And if you live in the church, you will be nourished because the outcome of this war is absolutely certain. Advent is the season when this great war becomes very real. And this war is not conventional. It is spiritual through and through. It's a war of tangible affects ruled by backstage actors. So don't be deceived. Don't accept the accusations. But rather take up the whole armor of God so that you might stand. Oh Lord, we pray that you would give us strength by your Spirit, so that we might indeed stand. Enable us, Lord, we pray, to believe your gospel, to trust in you, and to find life 
as we gather together, even now around the communion table, we pray, Lord, that you would meet us by your spirit here so that we might grow in your grace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.